0: A Treatise on the Religious Affections Section 11 Another great and very distinguishing difference is that the higher gracious affections are raised the more is the spiritual appetite and longing of soul after spiritual attainments increased. On the contrary, false affections rest satisfied in themselves. Truly there is no work of Christ that is right, says Mr. Shepherd, but it carries the soul to long for more of it, parable of the ten virgins. And again, there is in true grace an infinite circle, a man by thirsting receives and receiving thirsts. more, But hence the Spirit is not poured out abundantly on churches, because men shut it out, by shutting in and contenting themselves with their common graces and gifts. Matthew 7.29 Examine if it be not so. And in page 210 he says, This I say, true grace is a comfort, so it never feels, but puts an edge on the appetite. More of that grace, Lord. Thus Paul, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Thus David, out of my poverty I have given. First Chronicles 29, 3, 17 and 18. It is the sure way never to be deceived in lighter strokes of the Spirit, to be thankful for any, but to be content with no measure of it. And this cuts the thread of difference between a superficial lighter stroke of the spirit and that which is sound, quote. The more a true saint loves God with a gracious love, the more he desires to love him, and the more uneasy is he at his lack of love to him. The more he hates sin, the more he desires to hate it, and laments that he has so much remaining love to it. The more he mourns for sin, the more he longs to mourn. The more his heart is broken, the more he desires it should be broken. The more he thirsts and longs after God and holiness, the more he longs to long, and breathes out his very soul in longings after God. The, the kindling and raising of gracious affections is like kindling a flame. The higher it is raised, the more ardent it is. And the more it burns, the more vehemently does it tend and seek to burn. So that the spiritual appetite after holiness and an increase of holy affections is much more lively and keen in those that are imminent in holiness than others, and more when grace and holy affections are in their most lively exercise than at other times. It is as much the nature of one that is spiritually newborn to thirst after growth and holiness as it is the nature of a newborn babe to thirst after the mother's breast who has the sharpest appetite when best in health. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3 As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The most that the saints have in this world is but a taste, a prelibation, of that future glory, which is their proper fullness. It is only in earnest of their future inheritance. 2 Corinthians 1.22 and 5.5, 5. Ephesians 1.14 But here some may object. How is this consistent with what all allow, that spiritual enjoyments are of a soul-satisfying nature? I answer, its being so will appear to be not at all inconsistent with what has been said, if it be considered in what manner spiritual enjoyments are said to be of a soul-satisfying nature. Certainly they are not of a cloying nature, so that he who has anything of them, though but in a very imperfect degree, desires no more, but spiritual enjoyments are of a soul-satisfying nature in the following respects. 1. They, in their kind and nature, are fully adapted to the nature, capacity, and need of the soul of man, so that those who find them desire no other kind of enjoyments. They sit down fully contented with that kind of happiness which they have, desiring no change, nor inclining to wander about any more, saying, Who will show us any good? The soul is never cloyed, never weary, but perpetually giving up itself with all its powers to this happiness. But not that those who have something of this happiness desire no more of the same. Number two, they are satisfying also in this respect that they answer the expectation of the appetite. When the appetite is high to anything, the expectation is consequently so. Appetite to a particular object implies expectation in its nature. This expectation is not satisfied by worldly enjoyments. The man expected to have a great accession of happiness, but he is disappointed. But it is not so with spiritual enjoyments. They fully answer and satisfy the expectation. Number three. The gratification and pleasure of spiritual enjoyments is permanent. It is not so with worldly enjoyments. They, in a sense, satisfy particular appetites, but the appetite in being satisfied is glutted, and then the pleasure is over, and as soon as that is over, the general appetite of human nature after happiness returns, but is empty and without anything to satisfy it so that the glutting of a particular appetite does but take away from and leave empty the general thirst of nature. Number 4. Spiritual good is satisfying, as there is enough in it to satisfy the soul, as to the degree, if obstacles were but removed and the enjoying faculty duly applied. There is room enough here for the soul to extend itself. Here is an infinite ocean, if men be not satisfied here as to degree of happiness, the causes with themselves, it is because they do not open their mouths wide enough. But with those joys and other religious affections that are false and counterfeit, it is otherwise. If before there was a great desire of some sort after grace, as these affections rise, that desire ceases or is abated. It may be before, while the man was under legal convictions and much afraid of hell, he earnestly longed that he might obtain spiritual light in his understanding, faith in Christ and love to God. But now when these false affections deceive him and make him confident that he is converted in a state good, there is no more earnest longings after light and grace, for his end is answered." He is confident that his sins are forgiven him, and that he shall go to heaven, and so he is satisfied. And especially when false affections are raised very high, do they put an end to longings after grace and holiness. The man now is far from appearing to himself a poor, empty creature. On the contrary, he is rich and increased with goods, and hardly conceives of anything more excellent than what he has already attained. Hence there is an end to many persons' earnestness in seeking, after they have once obtained that which they call their conversion, or at least after they have had those high affections that make them fully confident of it. Before, while they looked upon themselves as in a state of nature, they were engaged in seeking after God in Christ, and cried earnestly for grace, and strove in the use of means, but now they act as though they thought their work was done. They live upon their first work, or some high past experiences, and there is an end to their crying and striving after God and grace. It is usual to see a false heart, most diligent in seeking the Lord when it has been worst, and most careless when it is best. Hence many at first conversion sought the Lord earnestly. Afterwards affections and endeavors die, that now they are good as a word can make them. And hypocrite's last end is to satisfy himself. Hence he has enough. A saint is to satisfy Christ. Hence he never has enough. Many a man, it may be, may say, I have nothing in myself, and all is in Christ and comfort himself there, and so falls asleep, hands off, and touch not the sark, lest the Lord slay thee, a Christ of clouts would serve your turn as well. And hypocrite's light goes out and grows not, hence many ancient standers take all their comfort from their first work, and droop when in old age. In page 93 and 94, Mr. Shepherd, mentioning the characters of those that have a dead hope, says, quote, They that content themselves with any measure of holiness and grace, they look not for Christ's coming in company. For saints that do look for Him, though they have not that holiness and grace they would have, yet they rest not satisfied with any measure, 1 John 3, verse 3. He that hath this hope purifies himself as he is pure. That saints content not themselves with any dressings until made glorious and so fit for fellowship with that spouse. When a man leaves not until he gets such a measure of faith and grace, and now when he has got this, contents himself with this, as a good sign that he shall be saved, he looks not for Christ. Or when men are heavenly laden with sin then close with Christ, and then are comforted, sealed, and have joy that fills them, and now the work is done. And when men shall not content themselves with any measure, but wish they had more, if grace would grow, while they tell clocks and sit idle... And so God must do all, but do not purge themselves and make work of it. Again, page 109. There is never a hypocrite living, but closeth with Christ for his own ends, for he cannot work beyond his principle. Now when men have served their own turns out of another man, away they go, and keep that which they have. An hypocrite closeth with Christ, is a man with a rich shop. He will not be at cost to buy all the shop, but so much as serves his turn. Commonly men in horror seek so much of Christ as will ease them, and hence profess and hence seek for so much of Christ as will credit them, and hence their desires after Christ are soon satisfied. Woe to thee that thou canst paint such a Christ in thy head, and receive a Christ into thy heart, as must be a pander to thy lust. The Lord will revenge this wrong done to his glory, with greater sorrows than ever he felt, to make Christ not only meat and drink to feed, but clothes to cover your sloth? Why, what can we do? What can we do? Why, as the first Adam conveys not only guilt... But power, so the second conveys both righteousness and strength. When the Lord has given some light and affection, and some comfort and some reformation, now a man grows full here. Saints do for God, and carnal hearts do something too but little feels them and quiets them, and so damns them. And hence men at the first work upon them are very diligent in the use of means, but after that they be brought to neglect prayer, sleep out sermons, and to be careless, sapless, and lifeless. It is an argument of lack of grace when a man saith to himself as a glutton said to his soul, "'Take thy rest.'" For thou hast goods laid up for many years. So thou hast repentance and grace, and peace enough for many years. And hence the soul takes its rest, grows sluggish and negligent. Oh, if you die in this case, this night thy soul will be taken away to hell. End quote. Page 227. Whereas the holy principles that actuate a true saint have a far more powerful influence to stir him up to earnestness in seeking God and holiness than servile fear. Hence seeking God is spoken of as one of the distinguishing characters of the saints, and those that seek God is one of the names by which the godly are called in Scripture. Psalm 24.6 This is a generation of them that seek Him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Psalm 69, 6 Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake. Verse 32 The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. And 70, verse 4 Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee, and let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. And the scriptures everywhere represent the seeking, striving, and labor of a Christian as being chiefly after his conversion, and his conversion as being but the beginning of his work. And almost all that is said in the New Testament of men's watching, giving earnest heed to themselves, running the race that is set before them, striving and agonizing, wrestling not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers." fighting, putting on the whole armor of God, and standing, having done all to stand, pressing forward, reaching forth, continuing instant in prayer, crying to God day and night. I say, almost all that is said in the New Testament of these things is spoken of and directed to the saints. But doubtless there are some hypocrites that have only false affections who will think they are able to stand this trial and will readily say that they desire not to rest satisfied with past attainments but to be pressing forward. They desire more. They long after God and Christ, desire more holiness, and seek it. But the truth is, their desires are not properly the desires of appetite after holiness for its own sake, or for its moral excellency and holy sweetness, but only for buy ends They long after clearer discoveries, that they may be better satisfied about the state of their souls or because in great discovery self is gratified in being made so much of by God and so exalted above others. They long to taste the love of God, as they call it, rather than to have more love to God. Or it may be they have a kind of forced, fancied, or made longings because they think they must long for more grace, otherwise it will be a dark sign upon them. But such things as these are far different from the natural, and, as it were, necessary appetite and thirsting of the new man after God and holiness. There is an inward burning desire that a saint has after holiness, as natural to the new creature as vital heat is to the body. There is a holy breathing and panting after the Spirit of God to increase holiness, as natural to a holy nature as breathing is to a living body. And holiness or sanctification is more directly the object of it than any manifestation of God's love and favor. This is the meat and drink that is the object of the spiritual appetite, John four thirty four. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Where we read in Scripture of the desires, longings, and thirstings of the saints... Righteousness and God's laws are much more frequently mentioned as the object of them than anything else. The saints desire the sincere milk of the word, not so much to testify God's love to them, as that they may grow thereby in holiness. I have shown before that holiness is that good which is the immediate object of a spiritual taste but undoubtedly the same sweetness that is the chief object of a spiritual taste is also the chief object of a spiritual appetite. Grace is a godly man's treasure, Isaiah 33, 6. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Godliness is a gain of which he is covetous, 1 Timothy 6, 6. Hypocrites long for discoveries more for the present comfort of the discovery and the high manifestations of God's love in it than for any sanctifying influence of it. But neither a longing after great discoveries or after great tastes of the love of God, nor longing to be in heaven, nor longing to die, are in any measure so distinguishing marks of true saints as longing after a more holy heart and living a more holy life. A Treatise on the Religious Affections, Section 12. Gracious and holy affections have their exercise and fruit in Christian practice. I mean, they have that influence and power upon them, who is the subject of them, that they cause that a practice which is universally conformed to and directed by Christian rule should be the practice and business of his life. This implies three things. Number one that his behavior or practice in the world be universally conformed to and directed by Christian rules. Number 2. That he makes a business of such a holy practice above all things, that it be a business which he is chiefly engaged in and devoted to, and pursues with highest earnestness and diligence, so that he may be said to make this practice of religion eminently his work and business. And number 3. That he persists in it to the end of life, so that it may be said not only to be his business at certain seasons, the business of Sabbath days, or certain extraordinary times, or the business of a month, or a year, or of seven years, or his business under certain circumstances, but the business of his life. It be in that business which he perseveres in through all changes and under all trials as long as he lives. The necessity of each of these in all true Christians is most clearly and fully taught in the Word of God. Solomon Stoddard, way to know sincerity and hypocrisy, quote He that pretends to godliness and turns aside to crooked ways is an hypocrite. For those that are really godly do live in a way of obedience. Psalm 119, 1-3 Blessed are the undefiled in the way, that walk in the law of the Lord. They also do no iniquity. Luke 1-6 They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the Lord blameless. But such as live in ways of sin are dissemblers, for all such will be rejected in the day of judgment. Matthew 7.23 Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The like we have in Luke 13.27 If men live in a way of disobedience, they do not love God, for love will make men keep God's commandments. 1 John five three. Herein is love, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. If men live in a way of disobedience, they have not a spirit of faith, for faith sanctifies men. Acts 26.18 Sanctified by faith that is in me. If men live in a way of disobedience, they are not Christ's sheep, for His sheep hear His voice. John 10.27 Men that live in a way of disobedience are not born of God, First John 3, 9. He that is born of God sinneth not. Men that live in a way of disobedience are the servants of sin, John eight thirty four. He that committeth sin is a servant of sin. A course of external sin is an evidence of hypocrisy, whether it be a sin of omission or commission. If men live in the neglect of known duties or in the practice of known evils, that will be their condemnation. Let the sin be what it will. Let it be profaneness, uncleanness, lying, or injustice. If men allow themselves in malice, envy, wanton thoughts... Profane thoughts that will condemn them, though those corruptions do not break out in any scandalous way. These thoughts are an evidence of a rotten heart. Titus 3, verse 3. We ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. If a man allows himself, though he thinks he doth not, in malice and envy, he is an hypocrite. Though his conscience disallows it, yet if his heart allows it, he is no saint. Some make pretenses to godliness, whereby they do not only deceive others, but, which is a great deal worse, deceive themselves also. But this will condemn them. THAT THEY LIVE IN A COURSE OF SIN, AND SO MUST GO WITH UNGODLY MEN. Psalm one twenty five five. As for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. If there be a great change in a man's carriage, and he be reformed in several particulars, yet if there be one evil way, the man is an ungodly man. Where there is piety, there is universal obedience. A man may have great infirmities, yet be a godly man. So it was with Lot, David, and Peter. But if he lives in a way of sin, he does not render his godliness only suspicious, but it is full of evidence against him. Men that are godly have respect to all God's commandments. Psalm 119.6 There be a great many commands, and if there be one of them that a man has not respect unto, he will be put to shame another day. If a man lives in one evil way, he is not subject to God's authority, but then he lives in rebellion. And that will take off all his pleas, and at once cut off all his pretenses, and he will be condemned in the day of judgment." One way of sin is exception enough against a man's salvation, though the sin he lives in be but small. Such persons will not be guilty of perjury, stealing, drunkenness, fornication. They look upon them to be heinous things, and they are afraid of them. But they do not much matter it if they oppress a little in a bargain, if they commend a thing too much when they are about to sell it, if they break a promise— if they spend the Sabbath unprofitably, if they neglect secret prayer, if they talk rudely and reproach others, they think these are but small things. If they can keep clear of great transgressions, they hope that God will not insist upon small things. But indeed, all the commands of God are established by divine authority. A small shot may kill a man, as well as a cannon bullet. A small leak may sink a ship. If a man lives in small sins, that shows he has no love to God, no sincere care to please and honor God. Little sins are of a damning nature as well as great. If they do not deserve so much punishment as greater, yet they do deserve damnation. There is contempt of God in all sins. Matthew five nineteen. He that shall break one of the least of these commands, and shall teach men so, shall be called the least in the kingdom of God. Proverbs 19.16 He that keepeth the commandment keepeth his own soul, but he that despises his way shall die. If a man says this is a great command, and so lays weight on it, and another is a little commandment, and so does not regard it, but will allow himself to break it, HE IS IN A PERISHING CONDITION. Quote. Way to know sincerity and hypocrisy by Solomon Stoddard. It is necessary that men should be universally obedient. First John 3, and so on. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And yet we know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, neither known him. He that doth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Chapter 5.18 We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. John 15.14 Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. James 2.10 Whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. 1 Corinthians 6, nine. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, and so on, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians five nineteen and twenty. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these: adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revellings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Which is as much as to say, they that do any sort of wickedness, Job 31, 3-7, is not destruction to the wicked, and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity. Doth not he see my ways, and count all my steps?' let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. If my step hath turned out of the way, and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to my hands, and so on. Ezekiel 33.15 If he walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. If one member only be corrupt, and we do not cut it off, it will carry the whole body to hell. Matthew 5, 29 and 30 Saul was commanded to slay all God's enemies, the Amalekites, and he slew all but Agag, and the saving of him alive proved his ruin. Caleb and Joshua entered into God's promised rest because they wholly followed the Lord, Numbers 14, 24 and 32, 11 and 12. Deuteronomy one thirty six Joshua four six eight nine and fourteen Naaman's hypocrisy appeared in that, however he seemed to be greatly affected with gratitude to God for healing his leprosy and engaged to serve him, yet in one thing he desired to be excused. And Herod, though he feared John, observed him, heard him gladly, and did many things, yet was condemned, and that in one thing he would not hearken to him, even in parting with his beloved Herodias. So that it is necessary that men should part with their dearest iniquities, which are as their right hand and right eyes, sins that most easily beset them, into which they are most exposed by their natural inclinations evil customs, or particular circumstances, as well as others. As Joseph would not make known himself to his brethren who had sold him until Benjamin, the beloved child of the family, was delivered up, no more will Christ reveal his love to us until we part with our dearest lusts, and until we are brought to comply with the most difficult duties and those to which we have the greatest aversion." I'm reading now from Elaine's Alarm to the Unconverted. This is not a footnote in the religious affections, but it well could be. This is from the chapter, The Nature of Conversion. All of Christ is accepted by the sincere convert. He loves not only the wages, but the work of Christ. Not only the benefits, but the burden of Christ. He is willing not only to tread out the corn, but to draw under the yoke. He takes up the commands of Christ, yea, the cross of Christ. The unsound convert takes Christ by halves. He is all for the salvation of Christ, but he is not for sanctification. He is for the privileges but does not appropriate the person of Christ. He divides the offices and benefits of Christ. This is an error in the foundation. Whoever loves life, let him beware here. It is an undoing mistake of which you have often been warned, and yet none is more common. Jesus Jesus is a sweet name, but men do not love the Lord Jesus in sincerity. They will not have him as God offers, to be a prince and a savior. Acts 5.31 They divide what God has joined, the king and the priest. They will not accept the salvation of Christ as he intends it. They divide it here. Every man's vote is for salvation from suffering, but they do not desire to be saved from sinning. They would have their lives saved, but still would have their lusts. Indeed, many divide here again. They would be content to have some of their sins destroyed, but they cannot leave the lap of Delilah or divorce a beloved Herodias. They cannot be cruel to the right hand or to the right eye. Oh, be scrupulously careful here, your soul depends upon it. The sound convert takes a whole Christ and takes him for all intents and purposes, without exceptions, without limitations, and without reserves. He is willing to have Christ upon any terms. He is willing to have the dominion of Christ as well as deliverance by Christ. He says with Paul, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Anything, Lord. He sends a blank for Christ to set down his own conditions. The bent of his course is directed to keep God's statutes. It is the daily care of his life to walk with God. He seeks great things. He has noble designs, though he fall too short. He aims at nothing less than perfection. He desires it. He reaches after it. He would not rest in any degree of grace till he were quite rid of sin and perfected in holiness. Philippians 3.11-14 Here the hypocrite's rottenness may be discovered. He desires holiness as one well said, only as a bridge to heaven, and inquires earnestly what is the least that will serve his turn. And if he can get but so much as may bring him to heaven, this is all he cares for. But the sound convert desires holiness for holiness' sake, and not merely for heaven's sake. HE WOULD NOT BE SATISFIED WITH SO MUCH AS MIGHT SAVE HIM FROM HELL, BUT DESIRES THE HIGHEST DEGREE. YET DESIRES ARE NOT ENOUGH. WHAT IS YOUR WAY AND YOUR COURSE? ARE THE DRIFT AND SCOPE OF YOUR LIFE FALTERED? IS HOLINESS YOUR PURSUIT AND RELIGION YOUR BUSINESS? IF NOT, YOU FALL SHORT OF A SOUND CONVERSION. And is this which we have described, the conversion that is of absolute necessity to salvation? Then be informed that straight is a gate, and narrow is a way that lead us unto life, that there are few that find it, that there is need of divine power savingly to convert a sinner to Jesus Christ. Again be exhorted, O oh man, to examine yourself. What does conscience say? Does it begin to accuse? Does it not pierce you as you go? Is this your judgment, and is this your choice, and is this your way that we have described? If so, then it is well. But does your heart condemn you and tell you of a certain sin you are living in against your conscience? Does it not tell you there is such and such a secret way of wickedness that you wish to pursue, such and such a duty that you make no conscience of? Does not conscience carry you to your closet and tell you how seldom prayer and reading are performed there? Does it not carry you to your family and show you the charge of God and the souls of your children that are neglected there? Does not conscience lead you to your shop, your trade, and tell you of some iniquity there? Does it not carry you to the public house or the private club and blame you for the loose company you keep there, the precious time which you must spend there, the talents which you waste there? Does it not carry you into your secret chamber and read there your condemnation? O conscience, do your duty, in the name of the living God I command you, discharge your office, lay hold upon the sinner, fall upon him, arrest him, apprehend him, undeceive him. What? Will you flatter and soothe him while he lives in his sins? Awake, O conscience, what meanest thou, O sleeper? What? Have you no reproof in your mouth?' What? Shall the soul die in his careless neglect of God and of eternity, and you all together hold your peace? What? Shall he go on still in his trespasses, and yet have peace? O oh, rouse yourself and do your work." Now let the preacher in your bosom speak, cry aloud and spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, let not the blood of a soul be required at your hands, Elaine's alarm to the unconverted. And it is of importance to observe that in order to a man's being universally obedient, his obedience must not only consist in negatives or in universally avoiding wicked practices, but he must also be universal in the positives of religion. Sins of omission are as much breaches of God's commands as sins of commission. Christ, in Matthew 25, represents those on the left hand as being condemned and cursed to everlasting fire for sins of omission. I wasn't hungry and he gave me no meat, and so on. A man, therefore, cannot be said to be universally obedient and of a Christian conversation only because he is no thief, oppressor, fraudulent person, drunkard, tavern haunter, whoremaster, rioter, night walker, nor unclean, profane in his language, slanderer, liar, furious, malicious, nor a violer. He is falsely said to be of a conversation becoming the gospel, who goes thus far and no further. But in order to this it is necessary that he should also be of a serious, religious, devout, humble, meek, forgiving, peaceful, respectful, condescending, benevolent, merciful, charitable, and beneficent walk in conversation. Without such things as these he does not obey the laws of Christ." Laws that he and his apostles abundantly insist on is of greatest importance and necessity, number two, in order to men's being true Christians, it is necessary that they prosecute the business of religion and the service of God with great earnestness and diligence, as a work to which they devote themselves and make the main business of their lives. All Christ's peculiar people not only do good works, but are zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 No man can do the service of two masters at once. They who are God's true servants give up themselves to his service and make it as it were their whole work. Therein employing their whole hearts and the chief of their strength. Philippians 3.13 This one thing I do. Christians, in their effectual calling, are not called to idleness, but to labor in God's vineyard and spend their day in doing a great and laborious service. All true Christians comply with this call, as is implied in its being an effectual call, and do the work of Christians, which is everywhere in the New Testament compared to those exercises wherein men are wont to exert their strength with the greatest earnestness, is running, wrestling, and fighting. All true Christians are good and faithful soldiers of Jesus Christ, and fight the good fight of faith. For none but those who do so ever lay hold on eternal life. Those who fight as those who beat the air never win the crown of victory. They that run in a race run all, but one wins a prize. And they that are slack and negligent in their course do not so run as that they may obtain. The kingdom of heaven is not to be taken, but by violence. Without earnestness there is no getting along in that narrow way that leads to life, and so no arriving at that state of glorious life and happiness to which it leads. Without earnest labor there is no ascending the steep and high hill of Zion, and so no arriving at the heavenly city on the top of it. Without a constant laboriousness there is no stemming the swift stream in which we swim, so as ever to come to that fountain of water of life that is at the head of it. There is need that we should watch and pray always in order to our escaping those dreadful things that are coming on the ungodly, and are being counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. There is need of our putting on the whole armor of God and doing all to stand in order to our avoiding a total overthrow and being utterly destroyed by the fiery darts of the devil, there is need that we should forget the things that are behind and be reaching forth to the things that are before, and pressing towards a mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, in order to our obtaining that prize. Slothfulness in the service of God and his professed servants is as damning as open rebellion. For the slothful servant is a wicked servant, and shall be cast into outer darkness among God's open enemies, Matthew twenty five, twenty six, and 30. They that are slothful are not followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises, Hebrews six, eleven, and 12. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And all they who follow that cloud of witnesses who are gone before to heaven do lay aside every weight, and the sin that easily besets them, and run with patience the race that is set before them. Hebrews twelve one that true faith by which persons rely on the righteousness of Christ and the work he hath done for them, and truly feed and live upon him, is evermore accompanied with a spirit of earnestness and the Christian work and course, which was typified of old by the manner of the children of Israel feeding on the Paschal Lamb, Exodus 12:11, And thus shall ye eat it, and with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog,